0: You're able to stand for the reading of God's word? Please do so. From Matthew You have heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks you, and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can be seated. Good morning to everyone. (coughs) Excuse me. Good morning. I was reading uh, an article recently in Christianity Today by Russell Moore, and he was writing about how several years ago he started hearing from pastors who were getting pushback from parts of their congregations, including uh, even glancing allusions to love your enemies and turn the other cheek. And when the pastors would explain to their congregations that these words came from the Sermon on the Mount, these are Jesus' words, the response from these people didn't change. That was fine for those times, the counter-argument goes, but not in a culture that is hostile to Christianity. It doesn't work anymore. For this, we can't be weak. We have to fight. Does this command that we heard to turn the other cheek uh, to love one's enemies work? Is it weak? Is it at best naive and at worst dangerous? Is it time that we as Christians began to fight? In Jesus' day, there was a long-established tradition of dealing with injustice and evil. It's called lex talionis. Uh, lex talionis is Latin for the law of retaliation. We'd probably sum it up this today by saying the crime fits the punishment. In Jesus' you could day, you could sum it up with the phrase eye for eye and tooth for tooth. So I don't know about you, but eye for eye and tooth for tooth sounds a bit barbaric to me. But it served a purpose. It actually served a couple purposes. One, it brought about justice. So you come up to me, you knock out my tooth, I have the right to knock out your tooth. Actually, probably more in Jesus' time, by that point, it would have been you knock out my tooth and now you have to uh, compensate me for the value of that tooth. But there's a way of squaring things. There's a way of making things fair. There's a way in Jesus' day of bringing about justice. But Lex Talionis also served another purpose. It helped to restrain revenge. It helped to stop the vicious cycle of violence. As I'm sure you all know, violence has this way of escalating. I think Mark Twain puts it very well in his novel, Huckleberry Finn. There's a scene where Huck's friend, Buck, is explaining to, to Huck what a feud is. And he says this, A feud is when a man has a quarrel with another man and kills him. And then that other man's brother kills him. Then the other brother on both sides goes for one another. Then the cousins chip in, and by and by, everybody's killed off, and there ain't no more feud. <laughs> Violence has a way of escalating on all levels of society. You say something hurtful to me, there's a good chance I'm going to say something hurtful to you, but I'm going to ramp it up a little bit so it hurts even more. Your country bombs one of my bridges, I'm going to bomb 50 of your power stations. Lex Talionis, the law of retaliation, sought to put an end to the cycle of violence. It sought to restrain violence, okay? You knock out one of my teeth, I can't just knock out five of your teeth, I can knock out one of your teeth. So I just want you to point out, in Jesus' day, there was a way of ensuring justice and restraining evil. And then Jesus comes along. And Jesus says, there's another way than lex talionis." He says, you have heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth, but I tell you, do not resist an evil person. Okay, this is different than the law of retaliation. Because Jesus says in this really short sentence, no retaliation, period. No resistance. I don't know about you, but what comes to my mind when I hear do not resist is something like passivity or resignation. So you do something evil to me and I go limp or possibly I flee. I don't think that's what Jesus is trying to get at. Partly because I, I know if you look at Jesus' ministry, he resisted evil in all its forms. His whole ministry was a resistance to evil. What I think Jesus is saying, and what many scholars have said, is Jesus is putting a stop to revengeful resistance. Maybe a, another word to think about is retaliation. And Jesus is saying you cannot use violence to resist evil. Okay? Resist evil, confront evil, but not with violence. And Jesus is now going to give some examples. He's going to illustrate what that looks like. But what's clear, and we need to see as followers of Jesus... Violence, retaliation is not an option, period. Why not? Why isn't violence an option? Isn't violence the best option sometimes in the face of evil and injustice? I think a fair question is to ask, was Jesus naive? Was Jesus kind of, as he's preaching the sermon, up strumming a guitar, imagining a world of peace where everyone gets along? Is that who Jesus was? Now, look what Jesus says to resist evil. I think this is an important thing that we miss. Jesus is saying, resist the evil person. Jesus recognizes that if you enter, if you go out into the world, you will inevitably encounter evil. That's, again, Jesus in all its forms was encountering evil all the time. So go back to this argument that I mentioned at the first of Christians today saying, this turn the other cheek stuff doesn't work. That's not the world we live in. You know, if Jesus knew the kind of world we lived in right now, there's no way he'd be giving this command to turn the other cheek. Let's think about that. Let's think about that for a second. I think we can look around our world and say there's a lot of violence in our world. I don't think anybody would disagree with this. It seems like weekly, maybe daily, there's another mass shooting. If Jesus knew about the world that would be there two thousand years later, maybe he would change that command. Maybe he would say, "It's time for disciples to arm up." That's the world we live in. We live in a world where it's time to fight. But let's think about it. what kind of world did Jesus live in? Jesus, these people that are gathered around Jesus up on the mountain—remember, we're up on this mountain—he's got his disciples around him. These are an occupied people. Meaning these people are under foreign occupation by the Roman Empire, which could be pretty brutal. Let me just give you one example from 71 BC. The Roman Empire up up near Rome had conquered a slave rebellion led by Spartacus. And in response to the slave rebellion, what the Roman Empire did is they erected 6,000 crosses along a 120-mile stretch of road known as the Appian Way. 6,000 crosses. They marched the slaves one by one. Every hundred feet or so, another person was crucified. Did Jesus understand evil? Yes. Jesus was not naive about evil. His disciples around him are not naive about evil. Jesus says when those people mistreat you, and they will mistreat you, you should not retaliate with violence. Don't seek revenge. Which then begs the question, okay, if Jesus is not naive, is Jesus just nuts? We don't say that. But I think we mostly treat Jesus' words with that. I think, as I said it before, I think the constant temptation when you come to the Sermon on the Mount is to think that you're smarter than Jesus. That you know about the way the world works better than Jesus does. Let's, but let's look, let's look at how the thread works its way through the New Testament. What about the apostle Paul? Did he think Jesus was crazy? Well, let's look at a slide here from Romans. We're moving forward. We're in Romans. Paul writes "says Do not repay anyone from evil for evil. Do not take revenge, my dear friends. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed them. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. For hundreds of years after Jesus, after Jesus' life, until the emperor Constantine, followers of Jesus took these words very seriously and refused to participate in the military because they believed what Jesus taught, that the way to overcome evil was not to escalate evil, was not to respond with violence, was not even lex talionis, eye for eye or tooth for tooth, no, The way to overcome evil and violence was with grace and mercy and nonviolent love. It was by actually seeking the good of that evil person in front of you. That is the way of Jesus. And Jesus here gives his disciples gathered around him a kind of field manual. These concrete illustrations for as you go out into the world, as evil encounters you, this is how you're to react. So let's look at these illustrations. He gives four. We're going to look at the first three. Okay, Jesus said, hey, say, say, for example, someone comes up to you and slaps you on the right cheek. If you do that, if they do that to you, turn the other cheek. Now, in Jesus' day, as in many places in the world today, you, you basically always avoided using your left hand. The left hand was used for things that were unclean. So imagine your head. it takes a little imagination. You're getting struck on the right cheek. We can be pretty confident that someone is striking with the right hand, which means, if you kind of imagine your head, you're going to have to do a backhanded slap. Okay, why why is, who cares? does that matter? Well, in Jesus' day, it was shameful to get slapped, but it was even that much more shameful to get backhanded. So think about this. So we think about, if I come up and slap you, probably what you're going to think about first is the physical pain you're going to experience. And there might be a little sting, but that's not what people in Jesus' day would think about. For them, in an honor-shame society, the biggest thing is that you have insulted my dignity. It's, it would be hard for them to insult you more than to go and, and give you a backhanded slap. We, we don't live, obviously, in honor-shame culture. We kind of get, though, that a slap is still pretty uh, uh, an affront to somebody's dignity. I mean, think about all the attention that, that uh, came about at the Oscars this year when Will Smith slapped Chris Rock on stage. Right? A slap can still be a powerful statement. So what do you do? What do you do when someone comes and gives you a backhanded slap and insults your dignity? I think most of us, I will include myself, I want to smack them back. I want to at least insult them back. And into that, into my natural predisposition, Jesus speaks these words, no retaliation, no violence, no violence with your words, no violence with your body. So what do you do? You're a disciple of Jesus. I'm a disciple of Jesus. Someone smacks me. I can't hit him back, according to Jesus. I could walk away. I could just stand there and take it. I could go limp. Fairly passive responses. But then Jesus offers another alternative. He says, he offers a more imaginative, a more creative alternative. He says you could turn the other cheek. This isn't passive. This is going on the offense, but it's the offense of love. As E. Stanley Jones puts it, he tries to break your head and you as a Christian try to break his heart. Next example. Now Jesus is imagining us in a courtroom and someone's trying to sue you. They're going to take your shirt. What do you do? Jesus says, what? They're, they're trying to literally sue you and take the shirt off your back. What do you do? Jesus says, give them your coat as well. Now think about this. Back in Jesus' day, males wore a shirt and they wore a coat, right? Think about an inner layer and an outer layer. And uh, to lose your shirt was bad. I don't think that would be good. You know, these, They didn't have big closets full of clothes like we do here. They might have had one cloak, maybe two cloaks. So you lose your shirt, that's bad. But to lose your cloak, to lose your coat would have been really, really bad. Because that would, at night, if you're traveling, that would, off, that would be your sleeping blanket. That would keep you warm. And this was seen as so cruel that there's actually uh, laws in the Old Testament that prohibited someone from taking someone's coat Uh, from a debtor okay imagine yourself you're in this court you lose your shirt what happens when you take off your coat you're naked i think jesus may be imagining a courtroom scene where now uh, the person who's who's been taking their shirt now they get up their coat they're standing naked which would have been extremely embarrassing for everyone in the courtroom as you can imagine it would be today too Jesus may be imagining that in your nakedness, you're going to expose the greed of that man. You're confronting injustice in the court, but you're not using violence. And maybe this guy that's suing you, that wants to take everything from you, maybe you can break through. Maybe you can break through his callousness. He's doing evil to you, but you, by responding in nonviolent love, maybe you can move him to compassion. Third illustration on nonviolent love. Someone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. As I mentioned, Jesus is speaking to disciples that are an occupied people. uh, And in this time, Roman soldiers had the right to come up to you and say, you need to carry my stuff for a mile. So Jesus imagines this scenario where uh, one of his disciples is out and about. A Roman soldier comes up to him. You need to carry my stuff a mile. And the disciple says, I'll carry it two miles. This would likely surprise the soldier. Probably has never gotten this reply before would have been confused. So now imagine these two take off. And now they've got two miles to walk, so they've got more time to talk. And maybe while they're walking, the soldier, who is still kind of trying to figure out why this person said they'd go two miles, says, you know, why are you doing this? Why are you carrying my gear two miles when you only have to carry it one mile? And the disciple of Jesus would have a chance then to explain the way of Jesus of peace is peacemaking and love, even to one 's enemy, and maybe as they walk and they talk, the soldier finds out that that disciple has a wife and that disciple has kids, that that disciple is a lot like him. Maybe the encounter does nothing to the soldier, but maybe it has the potential to open up the soldier 's eyes, maybe he 'll be like another Roman soldier who stood by the cross, who watched Jesus, how he was oppressed and mistreated and crucified and yet forgave his enemies from the cross that soldier was so moved by the example of Jesus that he confesses right there that he's the son of God maybe something similar will happen maybe a soldier will be moved from one side to the other maybe not but here's what i want you to see about these illustrations for Jesus these are not passive responses these disciples are not told to just crumple and fold They're told to think in creative and imaginative ways on how you break the cycle of violence, how you expose evil for what it is, in hopes that you will actually help overcome evil with good. There's nothing passive about the way of Jesus. Maybe we need to hear, maybe we particularly need to hear that. There is nothing passive about the way of Jesus. There is nothing weak about the way of Jesus. To draw the sword and to strike back, that's the way of the world. That's how people have been dealing with this for thousands of years. No, courage in the face of evil is to not give in to evil, not to return evil for evil, but to face it and absorb it and suffer it and overcome it. That's courage. There is nothing weak or passive about nonviolent love. Does it work? Isn't that the question we're always going back to? Does this nonviolent love work? We're skeptical. I understand. I get it. I get the skepticism. Peter would get your skepticism. Peter's right there somewhere. I'm sure probably up on the mountain with Jesus right now. He knows the teaching. He's skeptical. Why? Because when, uh, when he's actually tested in the garden, Jesus is being arrested. What does Peter do? Pulls out his sword, cuts off the ear. All of Jesus' teaching just goes out the window for Peter. Draws the sword, cuts off the ear. Jesus says, Put the sword away. Proceeds to heal the man's ear. Jesus then is taken from there. He's slapped in the face. He's mocked and insulted by Roman soldiers, and yet he does not retaliate. His shirt and cloak will be taken from him. He will be stripped naked. He does not retaliate. Jesus is led to a cross where he's crucified. He does not retaliate. He prays on behalf of his enemies. To the very end, Jesus lives out his teaching. We we need to see this. Jesus is not just someone who who has this grand teaching up on the mountain, and then when he actually is tested, it goes away. No, Jesus embodies what he's teaching. But did it work? Did the nonviolent way of Jesus work? I think by the looks of things, if we look up at that cross on Good Friday, it looks like the nonviolent way of Jesus is an utter failure. It does. Which is what's so scandalous about our faith, because in this shocking twist, in what looks to be total defeat, the nonviolent Jesus actually makes a spectacle of evil, actually disarms the authorities, actually triumphs over evil. Does nonviolent love work in the face of evil? The answer to that question is at the cross. Because it's at the cross that evil throws everything evil has at Jesus, and evil is no match for the, the suffering, nonviolent love of Jesus. And it's there at the cross that that's where we need to be looking as disciples of Jesus. That's where we need to, because that is where evil was overcome with good. See, think about it. God could, God could have chosen a different way to save the world. God knew something about armies. We went through Exodus we uh, went the Old Testament, we know something about violence and armies. Does God choose that as the way to save the world? No, he chooses suffering, nonviolent love to save the world. And for those of us who are disciples and put our trust in the crucified Jesus, the question is not, is this practical or is this realistic? Here's the question. Here's the, if you get one thing out of this sermon, here's, here's what I want you to get. The question for you is, what does it mean to follow Jesus? What does it mean for you to follow Jesus? That's the question you are to go back to again and again and again. What does it mean for me to follow Jesus? And you ask that question not because you're naive about the way the world works or about evil. It doesn't mean because you will escape suffering. Jesus actually assumes that his disciples will participate in his suffering. No, the question, what does it mean to follow Jesus, The reason why we can ask that question is because we know evil didn't get the last word. If at the cross, that's the end of the story, the nonviolent, loving way of Jesus looks crazy. It's only at the cross, in Christ's victory on the cross, that we now have hope in the nonviolent way of Jesus. Peter eventually got this. Let's, Let's put up the next slide. This is what he wrote years later in his letter. To this you were called... Because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. When they hurled insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. Trusted himself. That's what we're to do, to entrust ourselves to God. Do we get that? Do we still hold on to this myth that the way to redeem violence is through more violence? Or are we, like Peter, willing to actually follow Jesus in his footsteps? You know, strangely, one of the people people who took this most seriously wasn't even a Christian. It was Mahatma Gandhi. Gandhi spent 40 years meditating on the Sermon on the Mount. What I've been told is that Gandhi every day would read from the Sermon on the Mount. Do you read from the Sermon on the Mount every day? I would encourage you to think seriously about doing it. Gandhi did it for 40 years. We're disciples of Jesus. I would encourage you to read from the Sermon on the Mount every day. Because Gandhi saw the Sermon on the Mount as Jesus' field manual for for how you do nonviolent resistance. And he was extremely successful with it. He led India's campaign from British rule, and he inspired movements for civil rights and freedom across the world. And one of those people that Mahatma Gandhi inspired was a man named Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr., Dr. King encountered evil and suffering in ways that every, we can't even imagine, okay? And when King and his followers encountered violence and evil of segregation and the violence of that, of that time, uh, they shocked the world because they did not respond with violence. They did not back down. Dr. King put Jesus' teachings on nonviolence into practice. And what happened is that the world was shocked. Here were all these people... Going forward, in the face of stones, in the face of police dogs, in the face of beatings, in the face of fire hoses, and they did not back down, but they did not strike back. And what they did, what King and his followers were doing, is they were unmasking evil. They were unmasking evil for the rest of the country to see. This is evil. At his funeral, Dr. Benjamin Bay says this of King: "If any man knew the meaning of suffering, King knew. House bombs." living day by day for 13 years under constant threats of death, stabbed, slugged in a hotel lobby, jailed over 20 times, occasionally deeply hurt because friends betrayed him. Yet this man had no bitterness in his heart, no rancor in his soul, no revenge in his mind. And he went up and down the length and breadth of this world preaching nonviolence and the redemptive power of love. Preaching nonviolence... And the redemptive power of love. What about us? We're no Gandhi. We're no King. We're just people that live in Mahoning County and Columbiana County. This worked for us. Well, over the centuries, countless people have, have heard Jesus' teaching about nonviolent love, have, have read the illustrations he did, like Gandhi did, like King did. And what they've done is they've tried to creatively and imaginatively figure out how do I resist evil in my own setting? Not with violence, but with grace and mercy and love and kindness. And that's our task. That's our calling. To take Jesus' teachings, do, don't, don't use violence to resist evil seriously, to, to meditate on that, to, to think about, you know, what if I'm slapped? You know, maybe you won't be slapped, but you will be insulted. Probably good, good chance in your job or out on the street. Uh, Your cloak probably is not going to get taken from you. Your coat, but you're going to be treated unjustly at some point. And what you need to do, what you and I need to do as disciples, is we need to have so meditated on Jesus' words that we will we will respond not with violence, but with imaginative and creative ways to overcome evil with good. See, when you allow the teaching of Jesus to sink so deep into your bones and so deep in your heart that you're prepared to respond not with violent actions or words but with non-violent love. Let me end with one story of a guy named Jared McKenna who who did exactly that. Australian. Uh, He was 18. Uh, He was uh, in his first year of university. He was coming back on a train uh, and he'd been reading Dr. Martin Luther King for the first time. So he gets off this train uh, and he's walking over an overpass, and he's thinking about uh, Dr. King's words about nonviolent resistance, about how the early Christians took those so seriously. And all of a sudden, he encounters a large male uh, in a, in a tracksuit, his sleeves rolled up. guy walks up to Jared and says, give me your money. Okay? Jared says a number of things popped up in his mind, flashed in his mind at that point. He thought, I can take flight. When he thought about it, he was wearing this backpack. He realized he wasn't the quickest runner. He's like, that's not going to work. I can't take flight. He thought I could fight. This guy is huge, right? He realizes he's going to get one shot at the guy, and then he's just going to get smashed, okay? So flight doesn't seem to work. Fight doesn't seem to be an option. What next flashes in his mind are the words of Jesus that Dr. Martin Luther King had been experimenting with. Eye for eye, tooth for tooth, but I tell you. He writes this, Jared, the flash of those words in my imagination felt like warm oil over my head with a tangible sense of how this is how God is related to me. For the first time in the situation, I felt grounded. So what he does is he reaches for his wallet and he pulls out whatever money's in there, I think 10 bucks or something. And he says to the guy, I'm Jared. Uh, and he's to the surprise of him, the guy looks at him and says, James, I'm James. So on, the, on this overpass, they shake Hands And Jared says, it's the weirdest passing of peace he's ever experienced. They're standing there on this overpass and they're shaking hands. And and at that point, Jared looks at James' arms and he sees the bruising and he sees the scarring. And he sees it as this kind of icon to the depth of this man's pain and the desperate attempts to, to escape that pain. And then on that overpass, James launches into his life story. He said, I'm sorry for what I'm doing. I'm in a bad way. I haven't been doing well. I was on this medication for my drug addiction, but I got kicked out of my house, and I'm on the streets now. So Jared invites him to his house to eat and have a shower, help him find a new place to stay. And James paused. And at that moment, a young woman comes up in a track suit, and she's got a tracksuit and she's got a bag under her arm and she says to James, Go, go, we gotta go. And Jared says, wait, James, before you go, and he reaches in, he grabs a little New Testament from his backpack. He says, I got, it's got my name, it's got my number. If you ever change your mind and need a place to stay, you know, call me. And James responded with utter anger. He said, what do I want a Bible for? I'm going to hell. Without thinking, Jared says, we're all, James, we're all going to hell. That's why Jesus came he said, maybe that wasn't the, maybe a little bit high on the theological cringe factor. He said, but that's what I said at the time. That's what came to my mind. And he said, what happened next was one of the weirdest experiences of my life because then this guy in front of me just started to weep Not like a couple tears, like a child weeping, breaking down. Suddenly this pain that was so visible in his anger on his scarred arms and his situation seemed to burst like a floodgate at the news of God's love for him. James grabbed the Bible from Jared's hand, and he started running, and after a few paces, he held up the Bible and looked at Jared in the eye and waved at him. And when James made it over to the car where his accomplice, the woman, was with, she said over the music, I got a bag. And James yelled, I got a Bible. They drove off. And Jared ends his story with this. James taught me that there's nothing that shows the world what God is like more clearly than when we love our enemies. Despite the reality that throughout the New Testament, the cross is not only how God saves us, it is how we witness to that salvation. I'm aware that enemy love still scandalizes many fundamentalists and liberal alike. Who wants a savior who loves the enemies we want to kill? Who wants to witness to the God who loves, whose love falls like rain on the just and the unjust alike? Who wants a God who longs to heal those who have hurt us so they hurt no more? Who wants a Christ who comes to us in the pain we want to run from? The time has come to fight, to overcome evil, but not with the weapons of the world, not with the means of the world, but by the way of Jesus, to overcome evil, not with evil, but with nonviolent love.